Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Al Bernstein here uh, to welcome you back to another episode of our show. Uh, on this one, I believe we have uh, something very special to offer because we're going to be talking to Teresa Tapia and Paul Zenon, uh, who have co-written the book, The Ghost of Johnny Tapia, which is uh, a terrific book uh, by Hamilcar uh, Publications uh, that looks at the life of Johnny Tapia, the great boxing champion and a larger-than-life figure in so many ways in the, the sport. They're going to be on hand. In addition, of course, we are going to take a lot of your questions. We've been enjoying uh, answering all your questions, and uh, I think it's become a really staple of the show, and it gives us a good chance to have me communicate with you uh, in a different way, and you're sending those questions to me, at Al Bernstein, on Twitter, where I can read them and, and get ready to respond. To help me do all this, as always, my pal, my uh, co-host, uh, Mr. Trip Mitchell. Trip, how are you? I am wonderful. And today uh, we're taking the next step. We're doing this show on Facebook Live. And you and I are experts on all digital media because of our youth. But I'm <laughs> yeah, glad we've exactly. had some other people that were teaching how to do this. Yeah, precisely. That is our one area of expertise that we, uh, that <laughs> you we know, bring to the table. <laughs> so Shalise um, is helping us yeah, on this. That's, that's is, great. She is that doing that. I'm sorry. She is getting a degree in Facebook from college. Do you believe at 15 minutes ago when you were in college, did you ever think there'd be a degree in Facebook? Well, it's no, that's intriguing. It shows you that shows you how the world has altered itself uh, dramatically and in so many different ways. So, well, we're glad we're doing that. And uh, of course, for everyone else that's uh, watching us on YouTube or listening on uh, going to be listening on uh uh, on our all our platforms, we're happy that uh, that you joined us. And uh, a little bit of uh, news in the boxing world, huh? Yeah, it is. All of a sudden, boxing is making big news. And if you think about all the sports, boxing might be the sport that stays with us even if we return to maybe March and April levels, because football and basketball, baseball and hockey have so many people that have to stay virus free. But boxing can operate in a small tent. And maybe, just maybe, boxing will really see the best three or four months in a long time. And I hope that's the case. Yeah. And, uh, you know, listen, Top Rank and ESPN have kind of led the way in uh, making these matches early. And as they work through the bugs, there have been a few people that have tested positive on the undercard and even in some of the main fights. Uh, and, and so they've had to adjust and tinker. Uh, and and it won't be the it hasn't been the smoothest ride, but it, it but they have done a really good job of getting boxing on track. And toward that end, what has happened in their period of, of matches uh, that have already happened and the ones that are coming up in their summer series, we've already seen a terrific match that turned out to be a big upset, and that's part of the future news for boxing. Andrew uh, Maloney. Um, lost his WBA super flyweight crown uh, to Joshua Franco in a exciting and thrilling matchup uh, that probably is the best fight that we've had since boxing returned uh, during a delay after the layoff for the uh, pandemic. And it was a match that was so good that they're going to redo it again. Uh, it, of course, uh, Maloney being the, uh, the champion, he has a, rematch clause. He has invoked the rematch clause and he and Franco are going to fight again. They're working on the dates. Probably it'll be later this year and they will rerun what was a just a superb and exciting fight in which Franco pulled an upset. He was an underdog in that fight but managed to come back uh, and win it after Maloney got off to a very good start in the match. So we know we're going to see that match coming up. Another match that we're likely to see is uh, a fight uh, that the WBA has uh, mandated as a mandatory uh, fight 
to see who will end up with one of their secondary WBA uh, titles in the uh, welterweight division. Why do you need a secondary title, you may ask? I don't know the answer to that. But <laughs> in boxing, one title is not sufficient, so you need a secondary title. Um, now, normally, I would... I would greet this with less than, you know, wild enthusiasm, somebody fighting for a secondary WBA title. But one of the things that makes this kind of unique is uh, Jordinas Ugas, who is a terrific welterweight fighter, uh, great Cuban amateur champion, who got kind of a late start in his professional career, and in the last four years has been fantastic. And uh, has had one major fight that he got against Sean Porter, a fight in which he took Porter the distance, and many people believe he won that fight, did not get the decision. He's 33 years old now, so he, the, the, his boxing biological clock is ticking, and how much longer can he be a top welterweight? I'd love to see him get other big opportunities just because we want to see him in the ring. Well, he does get this one. Um, uh, he'll be fighting Abel Ramos, for the for this uh, to, for the right to fight for this for this secondary title or for actually for the secondary title and then they'll have a, a mandatory rematch uh, or a mandatory fight with another top contender after that whoever wins this fight uh, for Ugas it's a it's an opportunity for him to get something that will give him I think more bargaining power uh, when it, for him to get to fight some of the top welterweights like Keith Thurman or Danny Garcia or to cross the street and for my, and to fight uh, Terrence Crawford or maybe get in with an Errol Spence. So I, I'm glad that, that Ugas is getting an opportunity to, uh, to get into this fight. And uh, it's going to be probably held um, sometime in the next three or four months, and uh, maybe before then, and we'll get a chance to see him in what is uh, a meaningful fight. So uh, I mentioned earlier that we have some questions from everybody, and uh, Tripp, you are the question man. I, I am, and this uh, question comes from MMA Meets Boxing. Al, in all your years, who has been your favorite bo boxer to interview? Who has been participants in your favorite fight, your favorite boxing locale, and which fight do you wish you had covered? So we've right, got, we'll, I'll, we'll I'll, I'll remind you as we go through. This is yeah, longer. Yeah, we'll take these uh, uh, as we go. First of all, the favorite fighter to interview. I'm going to break it up into two categories. My favorite fighter to interview for substance and to hear interesting insight into the sport of boxing is Andre Ward, who we, in fact, interviewed on this show, uh, on one of our first, um, uh, one of our first shows. And it was a, I think it was a really, really good interview, and I really enjoyed doing it, and I've interviewed him so many times. So he is wonderful to talk boxing to, and even, you know, we do these pre-interviews before fights happen when we're announcing fights and uh, at the fighter meetings, and when we have fighter meetings, we used to have fighter meetings with, with Andre Warden and his trainer, Virgil Hill, or Virgil Hunter, excuse me, who will we, we will get on as a future guest on the podcast, by the way. Uh, talking to both those men about boxing was fantastic you know it was just like a uh, a master class in the sport it was great uh now my favorite interview for fun and unpredictability was always james tony you know i did many of his fights on espn on our top rank series and of course i would always get in the ring and, and interview him and he was funny he was you never knew what he was going to say he might wander off to another topic, but it was always an interesting topic. And, uh, and I have always had a great relationship with James Tony. So, uh, so those interviews were always fun. Now, some may remember his infamous interview with my colleague Jim Gray at Showtime when he got mad at Jim and knocked the microphone out of his hand. Uh, <laughs> and of course, Jim has never had anything antagonistic happen during an interview before, so that was unprecedented. Uh, Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> yeah, he's never had a problem. So, uh, but for me, James Tony was always interesting to interview and a, a lot of fun uh, for sure. I think the next one is the uh, best fight, correct? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I say this a lot and I would make a different pick, except I can't. Uh, the, the, most, the most fun fight for me ever was uh, Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo. Uh, it was... Uh, an amazing fight just on the surface of it because it was exciting. It was thrilling. It was well fought. 
and then on top of everything, after nine and a half rounds of this amazing action that was unparalleled, we had a, a dramatic ending and a twist ending. In round nine, uh, or round 10, excuse me, uh, there was two knockdowns of Corrales. And Jose Luis Castillo looked then like he was headed toward a, a, a surefire win. And in addition to the two knockdowns, a point had been deducted for uh, Corrales putting his mouthpiece out. So now that's a 10-6 round. There is literally no way if he survives it that he could just about win that fight because he would have been so far down on the scorecards. Well, in that round, as Castillo was coming forward trying to finish him off, Corrales landed a big right hand that slowed Castillo perceptively. Then he landed another right hand, and that really hurt Castillo. And before that round could end, Corrales had Castillo up against the ropes with his hands down, helpless, and the referee stopped the fight. So that ending, uh, along with the rounds that preceded it, which were spectacular, makes that the most fun fight that I have uh, that I have uh, ever announced. Did you um, say, excuse me, Al, did you say the thing that every boxing announcer says is he needs, Corellis needs a knockout to win, and it almost never happens? Yeah, I did point out, in, in, and I tried to sneak it in very quick because there's so much action going on, but even during that period, I did very quickly throw in the fact that, you know, this knockdown on the points makes it almost, makes it mandatory that you get a knockout. And of course, he did, um, you know, very shortly after that. I was, I was not sure I was going to try and jump in and say that because the action, I didn't want to go on a long explanation during the, the action, but I did, uh, I did certainly throw it in. Okay. Um, now we're on to locale, am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, this is interesting because the place... I'm going to pick, it's almost like I'm play, picking three places, even though I'm only picking one, uh, because this place was first called the Home Depot Center, then it was called the StubHub Center, and now it is the Dignity Health Sports Center. <laughs> <laughs> it is the place where the, um, the Chargers played for a little while, and the, the soccer team in LA plays. Uh, it's in Carson, California. And they, next to the field, the soccer slash football field, uh, is a, a bowl that was was anticipated to be used a lot for tennis matches, and it has been. But it became a haven for boxing matches. And during a period of time, and it still does house boxing matches and will when the pandemic uh, is gone and, and, and boxing comes back, uh, it has housed some of the most amazing matches. We had... Uh, uh, the Vasquez Marquez to Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez fight number three there. Uh, and what was a magical night. And uh, there's something about the, 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 the intimacy of that, even though it's an outdoor stadium and the history it's had of having great fights that makes it just my favorite venue. And here's the weird part. I hate boxing outdoors. I, I am against outdoor boxing. That's why it's ironic. I'm picking this as my favorite location. I personally really normally feel that if you can't put more than 20,000 people in an arena for a fight, it, you don't need to ever be outside. And of course, you know, fights like Anthony Joshua's fights in, in, uh, at Wembley Stadium where they could put 90,000 people in, of course, you need a bigger location because you can sell all those tickets. Uh, and yet, despite that, because I, you know, I think the weather can intrude. Uh, you know, boxing is just meant more to be an indoor sport. But this particular location uh, is an amazing one. And I told the story once before, but I'll repeat it. Uh, I had one of my more interesting broadcasting moments there because when it was called the Home Depot Center, we were, there were, we were coming on camera, Steve Albert and I, and I was supposed to talk about, it was a rainy night and, uh, and yet a lot of fans had still shown up outdoors for this fight. And I was supposed to talk about the great boxing fans at the Home Depot Center. And when uh, Steve came to me, I said, and you know, this, uh, the fans are amazing here at the Home Box Office Center. <laughs> While on Showtime. Yeah, on Showtime. And of course, the Home Box Office uh, uh, 
company, HBO, was our mortal enemy. So Steve, uh, Steve Albert quickly said to me, I think you've had your YouTube moment uh, for this year. And I said, yes, I, I definitely have. Now we're on now to the fighter uh, who uh, you had said in there had kind of broken my heart, even though I don't root for fighters. Well, actually, I've, I've got one oh, more. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Oh, that's a new question. Wait, I'm, I'm mixing up questions. What was the final one? My hey, Al, my job is to mess up the questions, and I'm good Not at me. it. Yeah, look at I'm doing it. Okay. You're, so you're rubbing off on me. What, what was the last question? <laughs> Fight you wish you'd covered. <laughs> that was the one. All right, I've, I'm, I'm skipping ahead three questions, right? Uh, yeah, Fight I wish I had, had covered. Okay, this I'm going to put in two different contexts as well. Uh, this was um, a... I, I w during the time I've been a sportscaster, the fights that I wish I had covered would have been all three of the uh, Marco Antonio Barrera, um, Eric Morales fights, which was a great trilogy, one of the best trilogies ever in boxing. Uh, I didn't get to announce those fights. I would have loved to have done it. Now, if we're talking about best of all time, where I could go back in time and do it, it would be the or original, the first fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Uh, that atmosphere then had to be just remarkable. I remember uh, going to a theater uh, where we watched it. Uh, it wasn't, the pay-per-view was in theaters. You had to go to a theater to watch it. And I'll never forget the excitement and the thrill of that moment. So that would have been that one. So I think I covered everything and then some because I tried to move on to another question. <laughs> okay, <laughs> our next question. Who is your Carl Malone of boxing? Someone who's unquestionably great, but didn't win a world title. And I'm sitting here in Salt Lake City asking this question. So that's close to home for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am, uh, uh, you know, uh, there have been so many great fighters that have not won world titles. And uh, I'll mention a couple like Bernard Taylor, the great amateur who was uh, – uh, from Tennessee, uh, who was fantastic as an amateur and was great as a pro, and uh, and won so many so many fights, uh, but never won a uh, a world title. Um, he was one, uh, but the one person who is the uh, poster kid for this uh, was a man during the great era of the light heavyweights in the 1970s and early 80s. His name was Jackie Lopez, who fought during an era when, I mean, Victor Galindez, uh, John Conti, Matthew Saad Muhammad, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad, Eddie and Johnny Davis, Michael Spinks got in on that, uh, that era, uh, Dwight Muhammad Kawi. Uh, there were so many great light heavyweights. James Scott, the man who fought out of Broadway prison, who was so amazing, who Yaki beat. Uh, unlike some of his other uh, colleagues in the, in the light heavyweight division. Yaki Lopez was an amazing fighter, one of the most exciting you could ever watch. He had four chances at the light heavyweight title and one chance at the cruiserweight title. Did not win any of them, but the, the light heavyweight ones that happened between 1976 and 1980 included uh, three decision losses. At least two of them could have gone his way. One was John Conti, and the other two fights were against Galindez, Victor Galindez. One of the Galindez fights, he unquestionably won. And Galindez, who had a habit of getting uh, decisions going his way, especially when he fought in Italy, which was like his second home. He was from Argentina, but he had promoters in Italy and uh, would fight there often. Uh, Yaki Lopez lost that. And then in... in his final light heavyweight championship matchup against Matthew Saad Muhammad, the great Matthew Saad Muhammad. Those were 15 round fights in those days. Yaki lost by TKO in the 14th round. Round eight of that fight is probably the single best round of boxing that I've ever seen. It was staggeringly good. And I urge folks to, uh, to take a look at that on YouTube when they get a chance. Um, it was amazing. So Yaki Lopez, in my opinion, is definitely the best fighter who never won uh, a world title. Fantastic. That was all great information. Yeah. So, um, so that's that. Um, and 
Uh, our interview today deals with a fighter who did win a world championship against all odds. <laughs> um, Johnny Tapia was a, a fighter who had a very nice career uh, going and then drug problems that would beset him for the rest of his life, for all of his life, became so bad that he was literally living on the street for a couple of years, uh, was out of the sport and uh, was not able to barely function as a human being. And some people thought he would just die. At the end of that period, he met his wife, Teresa Tapia, when he was just climbing back out of that pit. Uh, and that was when his boxing career started again and he would become a world champion. And I've always said this, and I, uh, I mentioned it in the interview, uh, I've never seen a fighter, there's only twice in my life when I've seen a fighter be better when they came back uh, from one of these terrible situations. Johnny Tapia was a better fighter when he came back from all these issues. And so was Tyson Fury after his couple year layoff dealing with similar problems, drug abuse, overweight, uh, weight issues, uh, mental uh, issues, um, mental health issues. And he was better when he came back. And the same is true of Johnny Tapia. Uh, there's been a very fine book written called The Ghost of Johnny Tapia by his wife, Teresa Tapia, who I have known for many years, as I did Johnny and Paul Zenon, uh, who is a fine writer who's written eight other eight boxing books, or eight books in total, many of them uh, biographies of boxers. And we had a chance, I had a chance to chat with them. Here's that interview. Delighted to be uh, joined now uh, by both Paul and Teresa. Uh, and we're going to talk about, as I mentioned, uh, the book, The Ghost of Johnny Tapia, which was uh, is a very, very intriguing and excellent read. And Teresa, you have been involved in a couple of different projects in which you've looked back at Johnny's life and um, your time with him. How does it vary each time when you kind of go through a different process of, of looking back? Um, how does it affect you emotionally and how do you kind of approach it? Um, emotionally, it always leaves me feeling raw after. It's just because you're thinking back and you're going through, you know, a bunch of different um, scenarios and you're reliving everything again. So I always feel raw after, but Paul was great. You know, he was able to, he was very delicate. You know, there was some things he had to get into that, you know, opened up that. I think I cried a few times with Paul, but he was always great and very patient. So that was helpful. Yeah, it's not a, certainly not a, an, an easy process uh, to be sure. And Paul, toward that end, when you were approaching this project and, and knowing that you had to uh, be talking about some very difficult things, you have written before, you've written eight books, and a number of those books have dealt with, um, uh, with difficult emotional situations with boxers like Martin Murray and others. Uh, how does a writer steal oneself to make sure that they handle this and approach it in the right way. Um, I've, I've got to say this book in particular meant that I had to be immaculate in the way I was approaching because you've got to remember that Johnny Tapia's autobiography finished pretty much when he, when he passed away. So I knew at some point I would be asking the direct question of take me through the day that Johnny died. And I think 99% of the people on the planet would have given you the whistle-stop answer and been in and out of that question in five minutes. Instead, Teresa said, let's back up a month because there was a whole month lead in there. And she went through in full color. I uh, did not miss a single detail. I mean, the, the strength and the admiration I've certainly got for, for Teresa to have done that was, was incredible. So I, I did my best to be as as gentle with the approaching but certainly also as clear-cut as possible in terms of what I needed from the questions and but working with Teresa was was great because she knew what I was trying to ask and she gave me the raw uncut version of exactly what I needed. Yeah the the comments in the book from you Teresa and uh, the the texture that you guys created was pretty amazing. Teresa you married Johnny after such a brief courtship I mean it was 
very, very fast. And the irony of it all is that you married him and barely knew that he was even a boxer, which is ironic. He had already been USBA champion. Uh, and when you married him, you didn't even really know about that part of his life, did you? No, I didn't. It was actually, um, I knew him in a very different world and it wasn't a good world. And um, after, you know, he, when I got him cleaned up, I remember um, when he said, you know, I want to come back to fighting. It's all I know how to do. I, it was foreign to me. My, he could have yeah. been talking to me. and I did not know what it meant to be mm -hmm. a fighter. And so when he entered into that realm and started training, I just remember feeling, you know, kind of, I didn't know what to feel. And I remember his first fight, I sat in the stands. I don't know if you remember that, Al, you probably do. It was in Oklahoma. It was under yeah. Tommy Morrison's car. And I sat in the stands crying the whole time. Mm -hmm. And this is where wives were allowed to go back to the dressing rooms. I didn't go to camp with him. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything that was, I had a phone call before the fight. And he said, you know, I love you. I'll see you after. And, you know, that's just the way it was back then. So it was a lot of weird changes. Yeah, and what you kind of, I think, during that time, it seems like from this book and from what I know of you guys, uh, the boxing was the thing that always kept him kind of uh, focused and kept him, uh, he told you early on in the relation, your relationship, the boxing is where the place where I feel most comfortable, where I belong. So in a way, keeping him busy and, and boxing was important for his sanity, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I watched Johnny fight on, you know, like I, you know, it's in the story, but um, I remember when I first met him within the first month, I, I witnessed him fighting in a beer cooler and there were no rules other than you couldn't use a loaded gun. So oh. from that transition to the boxing ring, it was a lot gentler, still scary <laughs> for a wife. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's, that is pretty crazy. Oh, my God. Um, Paul, you, I mentioned the fact that you, uh, you've done uh, books on other boxers, and some of them have involved very uh, personal stories. How, but it seems to me, based on, on what I, the stories I've seen you write, Johnny's story was kind of all of those on steroids, right? I mean, it, it seems like this one was the granddaddy of all, you know, emotional, difficult uh, boxer stories that anybody could undertake? No, absolutely. I, um, I never go into a, an interview with anybody complacent. Um, I always believe there's a possibility that if you get your torch with strong enough batteries, there's always a corner that you can shine on. And um, I mean, you mentioned about Martin Murray, uh, Jimmy Tibbs. That was one heck of a story. Yeah. In the prison sentence, uh, sparred with Muhammad Ali when it was 19-4 on the undercard of Ali Cooper. They put a bomb in his car, which went off with him and his son in it. Wow. And you got all these sort of, you know, and that's just a micro bit of anecdote from, um, from Jimmy. And then I start chatting with this incredibly lovely, mild-mannered lady who basically starts telling me all these stories about her first 24 hours. And that was, you know, that's my first 24 hours as, as Theresa Tapia. I was taking gulps of air thinking, wow, I mean, you know, th there was no video calls. We were doing us all on, sort of, on Messenger. And I, I remember thinking, that's our first session, and we haven't even started digging in yet. You know, it was a gentle first session. Um, I, I knew there was going to be a hell of a lot of stuff to come. But I tell you where I knew that um, this is for me, uh, having written quite a few books, and I knew Johnny's importance in the public eye was when Teresa gave me a list of people to approach that would be good to speak to right. um, for, for the book. Now, I'll give you an example. When I did Martin Murray's book, I had to do virtually a, a six-month witch hunt to try and get a quote from, uh, from Golovkin. And um, when we were thinking, right, who are we going to do for the forward for the book? And Teresa very calmly said, you should maybe approach Sammy Hagar. So I'm the worst person on the planet if you ever walk into a room full of famous people because I won't recognize anybody. And um, so I very calmly said, oh, Sammy Hagar, yeah, brilliant. Who, who is he? So, so I'm kind of looking on Wikipedia and it's sort of, you know, 15 years and Van Halen amongst many incredible other things. And Teresa, you know, doesn't sort of, you know, belittle me or anything. She goes, no, you know, he's, he's quite an important guy. Have a look and uh, let me know if you want to approach him. So, well, long story short, within about three hours, we popped an email to Sammy's um, PA and the initial response 
Um, because she, she obviously hadn't read the whole email, but the initial response was, you know, he's really busy at the moment, he's on tour, I don't think we're gonna be able to do this. And then half an hour later, it was like, yeah, Sammy's just said anything for Johnny, are you free tomorrow? That's the delivery I was getting from people. And I spoke with some big names in this book, trust me. Um, Johnny, the departed Johnny, held an incredible amount of weight. Uh, I can't even think what Johnny was like in terms of getting publicity and PR, et cetera, when, when he was alive. Well, I can, because Teresa gave me a taste of it. The, the ghost of Johnny Tapp is very much alive. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's funny, I was gonna, that was gonna be the way I was gonna phrase the next question to you because about what people said to you when you, uh, when you interviewed them, I'm guessing that the, the, the Sammy Hagar story is indicative of, of, uh, of the way most people responded probably when you talked to them. And by the way, the other thing that I think is, it, to me was, is hysterical is that not too many people are friends with Mickey Rooney and Sammy Hagar, okay? That's, you know, you can't, <laughs> Teresa, you can't get as more varied than that, can you? No, you can't, but that was Johnny. <laughs> but if you mention Johnny, it all makes sense. Where right. it wouldn't, the average person, but if they knew Johnny, nothing was out of the ordinary because that's who Johnny was. He brought together the most, the strangest of group of people and it all worked. Yeah, very, it, well, it, it, you're right. Very eclectic group of people that knew him and almost anyone I believe could spend time with him and, and find in, it enjoyable. And he was a, a, a person that had, you know, very varied interests and, you know, was, uh, was always intrigued in what others had to say. Um, one of the, one of the, the course of this book, of course, deals with um, his boxing career and also the, the personal struggles he was going through. One of the people that, that helped him so much uh, on a personal level, uh, and it's one of the, the sad aspects of, of, uh, of what went on ultimately because of his demise, was your brother, who uh, was a calming influence on Johnny uh, and ironically passed away while driving to go see Johnny, uh, one of the times when he was in the hospital. I can't even imagine uh, how uh, difficult that all was for you. Explain a little bit why your brother was such a good influence on Johnny and why they bonded so much. Um, you know, they, so interestingly enough, when I first met Johnny, my brother was against it. He, you know, I remember when he found out- <laughs> Not, not exactly a shock, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know Johnny's reputation, because remember, I grew up in California, right. and my family was tricky, but my dad lived in California. So when I, when my brother found out about Johnny, he, I remember him, and I'll never forget his face. He like grabbed me by my shoulder. He said, are you crazy? Do you know who that is? And I said, uh, that's Johnny. And he's like, no, you don't even know. You have no idea who you're messing with. You're in over your head. You need, and, but so that's how it started. Next thing I know, those two spent more time together than I spent that's with Johnny. Funny. Then I spent with my brother up where I was always having to chase them around and, um, you know, trying to find out with all their little capers. But I think the reason that they bonded so well was Johnny had this person in his life besides me who accepted him wholeheartedly. There was no questions asked. There was nothing my brother wouldn't do. I can't even tell you how many messes they would get into. And it was usually Johnny that was the one that was responsible. My brother would take the rap, you know, so, yeah, so to speak. Right. And he, because we knew Johnny was who he was. So my brother would, let's say there was a fight and someone got knocked out. My brother would stand over him. See, don't ever do that again. But Johnny was the real culprit. <laughs> That's the team. There was, well, you remember, and probably shouldn't bring it up because I'm sure Todd DeBuff wouldn't like to hear that. But do you remember the fight with Pauly? My yeah. brother was so emotional. And all it took was, was Johnny to look over at Todd and say, you did this. Before you knew it, there was Todd knocked out in the ring. That was the kind of bond that they had. My brother would do anything for Johnny and vice versa. There was nothing they wouldn't do for each other. And it was so heartwarming to see that because Johnny didn't have anyone. So it was, it was, like I said, it was, I'm, I'm glad, like I was stressed out at the time, but looking back, I'm happy they had each other. 
Yeah, you, it was an important relationship for him. You mentioned uh, the fight you referenced was a fight against Pauli Ayala, which was um, uh, uh, two fights that Johnny had that were fantastic. Um, getting before he got to that point, of course, Johnny had to, when you met him, he had, was coming off a long layoff uh, from boxing where his drug issues and, uh, had been you know, monumental. And I covered his career before he had the issues with drugs and then after. He was already USBA champion um, uh, when you met him. Then Johnny started to climb back uh, to try and regain his boxing career. And, and Paul, I was announcing the fight uh, when he fought Henry Martinez. And it was only, I think that was only a six fight back since coming back to the ring. And it was a packed crowd at the pit in Albuquerque. And uh, I'm often asked, what's the most amazing evening of all of the top ranked boxing series that we did? And just, I was asked that question on one of our podcasts just a couple of weeks ago. And my answer was that night uh, in which Johnny came back and won the world title. That was an extraordinary evening. I think that fight kind of encapsulated Johnny to an extent because um, with Johnny Tapia, the second he walked out the front door, whether it was in a public space or a boxing ring, with Johnny Tapia, he knew that something had the potential to go down right at any given moment. Yeah. And, um, and that night, he made it happen. I mean, the months preceding that, where Teresa had him on lockdown, literally... The windows were barred up and, uh, you know, she, she had him on military regime to dry out from, uh, from mass drugs. Um, that was the biggest fight there. And they say that, you know, 99% of the fight is done before you get in the ring. That's where the fight happened. Forget about road work. Forget about skipping rope. Forget about push-ups. Hitting the bag. Bringing out all his pedigree as an incredibly high-ranked amateur. His fight happened in that house under Teresa's guidance. And the result happened on the night when he fought Martinez. The response he got from Albuquerque, they knew they had a really good idea what he'd been through. And they certainly knew the man who had come back. That was, that resurrection was, it put Lazarus in the shadows. Yeah, pretty extraordinary. Uh, and it, Teresa, it's interesting what Paul's saying, that the real battle was just trying to get him to that fight and get have him be ready. The most amazing thing is that um, he would, like, like the Danny Romero fight, which is a perfect example, which came later, where it was a huge fight, and he was literally in jail three weeks before the fight, uh, staggering, and yet performed at an extraordinarily high level. Yes, that was Johnny, though. I mean, I'll never forget both fights. The Martinez was Johnny's favorite. You ever asked Johnny what was your, you know, he had so many great battles, but he used to say Martinez was the most magical. Yeah. That's what he would always say. That was his standard answer. Um, if you asked him, you know, what would he believed his great um, accomplishment, it was actually the Danny Romero fight because he was fighting for his hometown. Right. If you asked him his best boxing performance, it was against Conadu. So Johnny had, you know, all of his favorites. If you asked him what hardest fight was it was Marco Barrera because that was his friend right. but um, going into the Carol fight oh my gosh it, it was he was in jail he was on drugs he didn't he fired Emmanuel Stewart right. he didn't have a train we were training up in Big Bear and if you call it training because he was arrested and I remember I finally had no choice you know Bruce I, I called up Bruce and I Bruce said um, top rank, yeah Yes, I said, so Bruce, we have a problem because, you know, they're best, they were best friends. And he said, what's the problem? And I hate it to tell Bruce anything. And I said, um, so your boy, you know, he's getting ready for Danny and Danny's training at Angel Fire and he has this great camp. We have no trainer. Johnny's in jail. He hasn't trained and we have four weeks. And Bruce just flipped. He said, get him out to Las Vegas. What are you doing? And so he put Eddie Futch in charge. And Eddie couldn't hold mitts anymore, so then we called him Jesse Reed three weeks before the fight. I remember at the top-ranked gym, Johnny was sparring um, uh, Augie, Augie Sanchez, and he just good. He didn't look good at all. And and Bruce was like, you know, this is Bruce. He's like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> and I'm 
Bruce, I got this. I got this, big Bruce. I promise you, if I lose this fight, I will kill myself. And knowing Johnny, he would have. So Bruce is like, no, Johnny, we don't want that. Just step up and do it. And he's like, I got this. So that was what he had promised. The he lost to Danny. He would end his life. And so everybody was so scared of everything because of all the stuff that went for him. You, the, the, one of the more amazing things is that here you were at a certain point, you know, you had obviously, when you met Johnny, boxing was the last thing in the world that you thought anything about. You get married, you go through all these experiences, and then at a certain point, out of self-preservation in a way for him, for your marriage, for everything, you had to take over as Johnny Tapia's manager. That had to be the most daunting mm -hmm. task ever because it was way in a different skill set than you were used to as a professional woman. And now all of a sudden you're a boxing manager. <laughs> yes, that I owe and I will. I don't know if I thank Bob Case for that or if it was, but he started something. It was Johnny's agent. And he said, look, he, you know, I remember the conversation in Big Bear, California. And Bob Case said, you know, we needed a manager. Johnny had just split from Paul Chavez and top rank couldn't proceed forward, you know, with any fights. And they said, we need a manager. And so we were looking, talking, you know, throwing ideas around, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard had come in briefly, Tony Holden, a bunch of different people. And Bob said, why not Teresa? And Johnny and I looked at each other again, like he was speaking foreign language. And um, we said, and Johnny told him, I will get laughed out of boxing if I have a woman come into the fold, you know, and Bob said, laugh all the way to the bank. Who else is going to do for you? She, she's been there for you through your overdoses. She, you know, locked you up. Yeah. She made sure she's done and went above and beyond. Why not her? And that's how it all started, you know, good, bad, right, wrong. It was just something that it made sense after we started it. Well, and Bob made the comment that without you, Johnny would never have lived to 30. So, which is probably an accurate statement. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was a part of it, the, the handling the business part. Um, Paul, you, I mentioned that you've done so much work with boxers and you've covered boxing. Uh, what, where's the Johnny Tapia story kind of rest in terms of your, uh, you're writing about boxing. Uh, to me, it would seem like it's one of the richest tapestries that any writer could delve into. Did you kind of see it in that vein? Absolutely, yeah. When I'm, when I'm ghosting an autobiography, as an example, um, it has to be more than just a boxer. Grew up somewhere, it was a bit tough, did boxing, either did, became successful or went bust afterwards or, or had another ending, and that's it. There's got to be a backstory that goes in there. With Johnny, there was a continual backstory, but it went at the speed of light. There was a slipstream which came with it. And um, you mentioned before about you know sort of Teresa's uh, sort of ability to become a manager. I literally used the word ability in there because it reminded me of the trainers and the managers that Johnny had gone through. And I remember firstly approaching Teresa very delicately with the question of, I heard a rumor that Johnny had gone through about a dozen trainers. And she very calmly said, oh, that's not true. And I thought, I was thinking to myself, you idiot. Why go and offend her? Why not? You know, it's obviously going to be three or four trainers. And she said, it's probably nearer 30, actually. And I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. And so, you know, on certain days, it'd be three or four. And we're talking the best of the best in terms of trainers on the planet. And the same with managers. I, I can only liken uh, Teresa to someone who walks into an arena where there's a wild stallion. Um, and I liken Johnny to that in terms of power, intelligence, and, um, and sort of notable sort of eye candy content about him. And she's gone in there and had this sort of Jedi mind trick ability about to be able to gain the confidence of this wild beast. Um, what Therese did and how she did it, uh, she's probably the only person on this particular planet that had that capacity to it. And Bob Case saw that. Um, and it wasn't a case of whether she was a woman or a man as a person. She re he realized that is the way it had to happen. And without a doubt, Teresa extended Johnny's life by being in charge of his boxing. Teresa, that's a, a good place for us to, to uh, kind of put a bow on this and figure out the bigger question with, uh, with Johnny. You were able to persevere through, when people read this book, if they have not seen, know 
don't already know enough about Johnny's story, they will read the fact that it was turbulent doesn't even cover uh, what happened uh, during uh, the, his life and during the time you were with him. Where do you think you found the inner resolve uh, to get through all that? And I guess some people would ask this simple question, why did you, were you able to do it? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Well, maybe I you haven't figured dinner. that one out either, huh? Well, you know, uh, we were having dinner with, do you remember, of course, Earl Fash, um, sure, great guy. Showtime, great man. Yes, and so Max Kellerman, we were getting ready to do a movie deal for Johnny, and Max Kellerman was sitting there at the dinner table with us, and no one's ever put me on the spot like he did. You did just now, but Max was the other person, because he said, we were all sitting there, and I'm minding my own business, and they're all talking about Johnny war stories, and Max looks over, and he says, we all know Johnny was crazy, and we all know why he was crazy, he said, but I have a question for her. He said, why would you? He's like, you're crazy outdoes Johnny's crazy because you don't have an excuse. And I'll never forget that. And I remember mm. just kind of looking up at and the whole table went silent. There's like 20, you know, people from, you know, Showtime and other yeah. movie industries. And we were all just, and I got stuck on, and I was like, you know what? I don't know how to phrase that other than, you know, if you knew Johnny, what you did, Al, you yeah. knew the good and the bad. Yes. I believe the good far outweighs the bad. And his yes. loyalty, I mean, the way this heart, his loyalty, I mean, the things that he did, you know, the goodness in him, yes. to me, it wanted me to make, I wanted to protect him. Because you know that story of him as a little boy whose mom was murdered and growing up into a broken home and not being wanted, not feeling like he belonged anywhere. I wanted to I wanted to heal that person in him. I wanted to really do something different for him. And, um, you know, it, it was just, um, I think it was a protectiveness that I had over him because the way that he loved me and protected me, that was all I could do to try to give it back. And I know I went through crazy stuff and I probably, you'll laugh at me now. I, I told Paul this, I said, now I am actually the crazy person in every situation in life. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. I'm like, wait, there is no job. <laughs> to like balance me out to everyone just has me labeled as you are so out there and I'm like why I'm just used to Johnny 20 years so I have to learn boundaries again. that's been hard let me tell you <laughs> well you know as you point out um I did I was privileged to spend a lot of time around Johnny and time around you as well and the way you answered that question was beautiful and and accurate because if you and I, I'm speaking for a whole bunch of people here. Uh, many people that knew Johnny uh, on a more intimate basis than I did, though I considered him a friend and a great guy. Uh, Johnny brought something to the table as a human being that was universally appreciated by people. Yes, he created turmoil in his wake. Uh, and some of that rubbed off uh, in a negative way on those close to him and even those semi-close to him. But it was clearly never intentional, and and there's there was a a quality about Johnny that was so special that all of us saw. Uh, and you mentioned Daryl Fash, who was uh, the head of uh, features at Showtime, who has since passed away, unfortunately. And I don't know of anybody, any human being that Earl loved more than Johnny. That he just he appreciated him so much, and I think that's true of so many of the people that we've discussed. Yes. And another word combination. Earl, I remember we met his parents, you know, when they were alive and then we went to his parents, you know, their ceremonies when they both passed. And Earl would say, my parents would say, how the heck did you end up from this cholo from New Mexico as your brother? <laughs> Earl was like, it's so funny. But again, Johnny yeah. had that weak sense of being able to create a family with the people that you would never think likely, like you pointed out with Sammy Hagar and Nikki Rooney. I mean, yeah. it's just, that's just how it was. So it's, um, it was definitely, like I said, it was, it was a great journey. And, um, you know, Paul and I talked about it, you know, Henry Martinez was the most magical event that there was in Johnny's life, his first championship. Ironically, the same place he won his first championship is where he had his memorial service. And you know what else? The memories, you can look it up online. People out there, six o'clock in the morning, they were like just thousands. People were turned away. There was thousands of people turned away because they did not expect it to be that big. 
But again, that shows, and it was people from all walks of life. That's the one thing you will always see with Johnny. It didn't matter if they were white, if they were black, if they were Hispanic, if they were from a different planet, they all loved Johnny because he gave them something. He gave them some kind of hope. Very well put. Uh, very well put indeed. Paul, you wanted to comment. Sorry, yeah, one, one tiny thing there. Um, I, I recently wrote a piece called When Johnny Came to London, and I interviewed uh, Frank Warren, and, um, and I interviewed his PR manager, and I interviewed the guy who was headlining on that particular evening. It was Johnny's first uh, and only ever trip um, overseas. And um, people queued up way past the capacity of the York Hall in Bethnal Green, which obviously you're very familiar with. And um, people were queuing right the way around the block. And that had never been seen before. And they all knew they weren't going to get in. They just came to, saw, to see Johnny and get a glimpse of him. These were the days before smartphones and whatever else. People just wanted to say, I saw Johnny Tapia. And that was it. And when I interviewed um, Wayne Alexander, who was the headline act that night, fighting for the um, super welterweight, the light middleweight and old money, um, European title, he said, I was the headline act. He said, but I wasn't really. It was Johnny Tapia. <laughs> mm, interesting. Well, what, it, it, uh, the book, Ghost of Johnny Tapia, is an excellent read. And uh, it is yet another piece to the puzzle of, uh, of Johnny Tapia. Tapia's life and gives you a, a, a good understanding of who he was as a person uh, and, of course, as a fighter. He's one of the most remarkable uh, people I've ever come across in the world of sports, and um, we're all better for having known him, that's for sure. Teresa and Paul, I can't thank you enough for uh, visiting with us, and I hope everybody uh, goes out and gets this fine book, uh, The Ghost of Johnny Tapia by Hamilcar uh, publications. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Al. Pleasure. Nice speak, speaking with you, Paul, as usual. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to catch up offline at some point. Definitely. Right. I'll have to tell you that famous Sammy said about you. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm you this. <laughs> All right, you guys Thanks, take care. Thank, thank you very much. Thank take you care. so much. Thank you. It was intriguing to me that she didn't even know that Johnny Tapia was a boxer for, a, you know, they got married very soon after they met. He hadn't even mentioned to her that he was a boxer. And finally she found out and said, oh, that's what you do. Uh, and then of course the rest of their life was uh, a roller coaster ride um, as, as you saw in the interview. Well, you have mentioned that that was probably your best moment on a personal level where you got a chance to do his championship fight coming back and your objective, but deep down inside, you wanted him to win that very badly. Yeah. I mean, I, right. I, I think everybody that was, you know, what Johnny Tapia was someone that for him to conclude that amazing comeback story there, it's impossible to be a human being and not want that ultimately to happen. Henry Martinez, who, by the way, was a lovely guy and a good fighter, who's his opponent on that specific night, uh, you know, uh, you want to, I certainly hope I called the fight fairly and gave him his due. Uh, but he, you know, he, 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 he became a bit player in this, in this uh, drama. And uh, it was an extraordinary evening. And it was uh, the culmination of uh, what was an amazing comeback for Johnny Tapia. And uh, his story's been, you know, told a couple times. And in this particular book, um, uh, The Ghost of Johnny Tapia, it is retold by Teresa and Paul Zinan, who is uh, a very fine writer. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you got to do that. I know you were really looking forward to it. And it was bittersweet in some ways, but a great story. Yeah, for sure. So we've got some more questions. We do. First of all, someone with the greatest uh, Twitter handle ever, ever, Smelodies writes, two questions. Who do you feel Ali fought, who was the closest stylistically to Lennox Lewis? And then the second question, which boxer would you say thoroughly th throughout the years, that is, has been the closest stylistically to Juan Manuel Marquez? So two questions. Yeah, uh, both those are intriguing. Uh, and the, um, it's hard, the, the one about Lennox Lewis is a tricky one and a hard one because there weren't that many heavyweights that physically resembled Lennox Lewis at that time. 
uh, not as tall, not as big. And so it's very hard to find somebody. And, and I know the reason for asking it, which is a good reason, oftentimes people theorize how would Ali do against Lennox Lewis. Now, I'm one of the people that feels that a completely in shape, ready Lennox Lewis is a very difficult opponent for Muhammad Ali. In fact, I personally think he probably would win that fight. I'm sure some people will find that heresy, uh, but I do. The, the only person he faced during his career who physically resembled him really, and had some of the skill sets uh, of Lennox Lewis is a man we've mentioned before on here, Ernie Terrell, uh, a, a, a Chicagoan who won a version of the heavyweight title. And when he and Ali fought, they were, you know, uh, it was for unification of heavyweight titles. And Ernie was six foot six. He had a very good jab like Lennox Lewis. Didn't have a powerful right hand as Lewis did. It had a good right hand, but it wasn't as powerful as Lewis. Very tall fighter who at his best fought tall. And when he fought tall, was hard to beat. Ironically, in the Ali fight, he didn't really accentuate his advantages as much as he, he should have. And Ali won a very convincing uh, decision over Ernie Terrell. Um, and Ernie, who was a very good fighter, but certainly not on the level of Lennox Lewis. But in terms of physicality and somewhat in style, he was probably the, uh, uh, the closest to, uh, to Lennox Lewis. Now, we, on an earlier podcast, we talked about uh, Ernie Terrell as a performer. And, uh, uh, and I'm gonna, right now, I'm going to actually have people re relive, and we're going to be showing that when we show this episode, uh, Ernie Terrell as a singer. He was both a songwriter and a singer. And, and about a week or so before he fought Ali, and the, and the show aired only a night or two before, he was on Hollywood Palace, an old musical variety show, singing one of his original songs before, just before he went in to face Muhammad Ali. And, and Ernie, along with his um, sister, uh, uh, Jean Terrell, uh, who is wildly talented and, and went on to be uh, a member of the Supremes, uh, they did this song. And I'm gonna, let's put in that song right here so people can hear something Ernie Terrell did that he did better than Lenny Slows. With the hammer and a knee. With the hammer and a knee. With an axe and a saw. With an axe and a saw. With a pencil and a root. With a pencil and a root. And my old grandma. And my old grandma, yeah. Grandpa built a house so strong. A place where they call home. This is where my mama and my daddy told me I was born. Ernie, there you are. Ernie Terrell doing an excellent job uh, musically, but he wasn't quite the fighter that Lennox Lewis was. Hey, Al, Al, did he ever get any bad reviews ever by any member of the media? And if whoever that writer is had a lot yeah. of courage. Would they dare to give Ernie a bad review, right? Well, I, well we had other boxers that were, that were, uh, that were, were, were performers. Joe Frazier in the knockouts, he performed uh, um, the... Uh, Larry Holmes had a musical group, and uh, so yeah, they there were there were a number of uh, of fighters, and I don't yeah musical music critics I don't think wanted to cross them. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. uh, what else we got? Okay, so and uh, which boxer would you say throughout the years has been oh the Marvin Marquez right? Yeah. Uh, so 
it's really hard to because you have to find somebody who can who counter punches like him and has the same kind of technique. This was a tough one because I'm and some may even question this, but the when I kind of went through my brain and looked at some records. One of the fighters that reminds me a little bit of Juan Manuel Marquez was a welterweight during the uh, De La Hoya, Trinidad, uh, Vargas era. His name was Ike Corte, uh, an African fighter who was uh, a really solid, solid welterweight. He, he fought those fighters to a standstill, lost a very close decision to uh, Oscar De La Hoya, um, which he had De La Hoya down at once in a fight. Uh, and and I Corte had the same kind of great technique that Juan Manuel Marquez did, a good counterpuncher like Marquez. He wasn't quite as good as Marquez. Uh, he was a, you know, I Corte was a B plus level fighter. Juan Manuel Marquez, of course, is an A level fighter. Um, but he's someone that I think uh, resembles Juan Manuel Marquez. Okay. And then our final question. We're finally um, there, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> who was the fighter you thought would be huge, who broke your heart? And I know, and he followed up with this, I know you're supposed to have favorites, not to have favorites, I should say, but you are human. And we're very proud of that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate being called human. Uh, so, some have suggested I'm not. So, um, I, yeah, this, this, I was so excited about this question. I tried to answer it earlier. Uh, I think it's an interesting question because, you look at, at boxers and you say, and again, as he points out, I, I try to be dispassionate about them and I'm, uh, so you don't root, root for someone, but there are fighters that you say to yourself when you look at them, well, this fighter's gonna have this kind of career or that kind of career, or here's what the upside is for them. Now, a fighter I thought of putting in this category, but I didn't, was Howard Davis, who was the, Davis, Howard Davis Jr who fought in the 1976 Olympics and was in fact named the fighter of the Olympics in 1976, which is pretty amazing when you think you had Sugar Ray Leonard on the USA team, uh, you know, uh, the two Springs brothers, uh, so many other great fighters in, in that Olympics. And yet Howard Davis won the, uh, the trophy for the uh, Val Barker trophy for the best fighter in the Olympics. He would go on to have a very good professional career but one in which he did not win a world title. Uh, he had a couple of opportunities, and I thought maybe Howard Davis should fit, fit in here. But I didn't want to do that because Howard Davis did have a very good career, and, and it would be probably inappropriate to say that he was the biggest disappointment, even though he was disappointed that his career didn't get exactly where he wanted it to go. But the one gentleman who I think... I had really high expectations for, and so did so many others, was a fighter named Clint Jackson, who had amassed a fantastic amateur career and won 206 amateur fights while losing something like 14 or 15. He was the US champion. He represented the United States in the Olympics in 1976 and got to, or not in, yeah, and got to the, uh, quarterfinals of of the uh, the the Olympics uh, didn't win a medal, but he did very well. And coming out a little late at age 25, everyone looked at him. He was a left-hander. He was a bruising fighter. Had great technique, active fighter, fun to watch for the fans. And we did many of his fights on the ESPN Top Rank series when he was developing. He looked for all the world, like somebody that was going to be a world champion. He beat every C-level and C-plus level fighter that he faced, or B-minus, if you want to look at it that way. He could not beat anyone that was a B-level fighter or beyond. He had a series of losses against those people during the course of his career. Could not take that final step to even get a world title shot. And I... On top of everything else, Clint Jackson was was a guy I always enjoyed covering. Uh, now, ironically, uh, his life also outside of boxing ended up going really terribly wrong for him. He had been a sheriff's uh, deputy, but was accused of and ultimately convicted of an extortion scheme that put him in, in prison, and uh, he remains there. 
to this day. So life uh, in the boxing ring outside of it didn't go well for Clint Jackson. And I, I have to say that I thought in the ring that he was going to become a world champion. And uh, he certainly did not. Um, I want to, uh, this show, however, has gone the way we wanted it to for the most part, I think, uh, and been <laughs> enjoyable. Uh, at least for me it has, I hope for all of you as well. And um, I want to remind you that uh, you can subscribe to our our channel, our YouTube channel. We've moved everything to our new YouTube channel, and uh, you can subscribe to that. Uh, and of course, uh, we hope that you will go there and do that. And we know many of you listen to us on uh, the other uh, outlets and platforms that we are on, like Spotify and Google and Apple and iHeart and all the rest. Uh, so we're, wherever you get this, we're happy that you did. Next week on our show, uh, Trip, you'll be happy to know this, we're going to be interviewing Steve Farhood, uh, my comrade at uh, Showtime Boxing and a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. So we will look forward to, uh, we'll look forward to talking to him. And uh, we want to thank, I want to thank uh, Trip for his great contributions uh, to the show. My friend, uh, thanks to Lee for producing it. And thanks to all of you for watching. We'll see you next time.